Hi, hello. We're back with next episode of Media Intelligence Podcast. My name is Alicia Bors and I am one of your hosts. Usually with me is my partner Vlado Petkov. Unfortunately, he couldn't record this intro with me this time, but don't worry, you will hear him in the next part of the episode, which I'm very excited about because we recorded for you an interview with Raina Lazarova, founder of and chief operation officer of Rupoint. We talk about the value of our vanity in communications and measurement and the challenges that are in front of communication professionals. So, without further Let's go to the interview. Hi, Reni. I'm really, have to say, fascinated that we finally have the opportunity to talk. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a great honor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and is here to too. Yeah, I'm also here. <laughs> uh, so hi. So for those of you who don't know Raina and uh, Vlado, they, they, you know, they come the way back. Uh, but today with us, we have uh, Raina Lazarova, the CEO and the co-founder of Rupoint and also a board member of AMEC. So hello officially, Raina. <laughs> hi, Alicia. Good to be here. I really like uh, your, how to say, English version of your name. It's like Reina, but it's Reina in Bulgarian. So yeah, Reina, it's, it always fascinated me too. First of all, I, I know that you, you are in this industry for the last more than 10 years. Uh, you participated in a lot of different organizations. But please introduce yourself and Rupoint to our audience. Great. My name is Raina and I am one of the co-founders and COO of Rupoint, a global media intelligence company headquartered in Dublin. Uh, we've been uh, working on the Irish and global markets for the last uh, six years and a bit. And we are very excited to be part of this industry at this moment in time when so many changes are taking place, uh, not the least the rise of generative AI, which I'm sure will be one of the topics we touch upon. Uh, the industry is going through a, a big transformation and the kind of more extended industry, the, the industry that we service, the communications industry, is also go going through a huge transformation of its own. And I think it's a really good time for all of us as decision makers in this industry to, to be part of it. Uh, very happy to be here, of course. Uh, we are, uh, and I'm personally actively involved in both FIBEP uh, and AMEC, the two industry bodies. And I'm really pleased to be wearing many hats on this episode today, uh, but I, I, I'm mainly representing, obviously, the, the, the company Rupoint. So happy to yeah. be here with both of you. Perfect. Tell us more about Rupoint. Rupoint is what we would call in the industry a full services media intelligence provider. We support the communications and PR community with media monitoring and media evaluation services with the ultimate goal of helping them evaluate and prove the value and impact to the organization. And really a lot of what we do has been focused on making sure that the, the great talent we have in the business, uh, a lot of editors and analysts and domain experts with multiple languages focus their energy and effort on delivering value uh, and expertise to our clients. And respectively, we use technology to make sure we can make those processes and workflows more efficient to free up time uh, for, for our analysts and teams to deliver value and work as real partners of the communications industry. A lot of the work we do has evolved increasingly over the last years into more of a consultancy business, uh, whereby our expertise in certain industries is viewed as one of the key, both differentiators, but also support mechanisms that we have to our clients. Uh, some of the industry, industries that we specialize in, banking, financial services, FMCG, airlines, a lot of the big 
uh, industry where industries where you have both big local players but also big global organizations, which is where we've been looking at in the last two years, trying to leverage our experience in in our domestic Irish market to service those global organizations that have local PR teams and PR agencies working on the ground, but also they have an HQ and a vice president of communication or head of communications at HQ level who are responsible for the overarching communication strategy for the whole organization. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of our um, energy and focus has been in recent years. Yeah. Uh, as far as I do understand, you work directly with end customers. Uh, do you white label your uh, products and services or that's, that's not part of your model? No, our focus is to work directly with clients, with yeah. communications teams, both in-house communications teams yeah. and agencies that respectively work with, with in-house teams. That's mm-hmm. the focus. Okay, one final question regarding Groupoint. You mentioned that you have your IT team. Do they develop products for uh, Groupoint, which you after that use to deliver for your customers? Or is that uh, an automation team which is focused on streamlining processes and workflows? As a very young organization, we've been extremely lucky in having the opportunity to build all our technology from the ground up in a very exciting time when cloud had was already established. Uh, so yeah. six years ago, we embraced the cloud. Everything we do is cloud native and is built in-house and is proprietary. And therefore, we have no technology debt, no legacy to worry about. But also, uh, everything we do from an IT infrastructure point of view is extremely cost efficient. We're very proud of that. Uh, our IT team is mainly focused on developing that backbone of our operations that then gives us the efficiency workflow-wise to deliver services at scale to our customers. When it comes to front-end technology and the kind of client-facing part of, of the services we deliver, we have a more of a hybrid approach whereby we have both in-house built apps and we also partner with third parties and utilize third-party client-facing technology to deliver client-facing solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and then from a data scientist point of view, I guess there was one aspect of what you said was, well, how about yeah. the data science, science part of it? Yeah. Um, we've developed an in-house team and we're very pleased that Alicia has become recently part of that mm. team. Uh, and, and we work on, uh, at the moment, certainly we work a lot on exploring and exploiting the art of the possible with generative AI. It's a very, it's a very interesting area for us and and Mm -hmm. something that we talk about a lot, the implications of AI and the right and wrong way of using it. So definitely a a lot of board meeting discussions and a lot of day-to-day conversations revolve around that topic. Yeah, yeah, that that topic exploded, really. I'll just step a little bit back and ask you about your role as Chief Operation Officer. Could you please describe to us what do you do like are you just focused on operation or in a way you act as a product developer or what do you do within your point so i guess as a business owner there is yeah. a time at the start of the of the business when you roll up your sleeves and you do everything yeah from yeah curating content through to evaluating <laughs> content and delivering to clients and pitching up to buying um, stationery for the office. That time is, <laughs> is that, that time is uh, be, behind us now. What I've spent the first few years at TruePoint on is building a strong operational model that gives us the both the management bandwidth but also the scale to grow the business. 
and, and support new business. Um, since the, the start of last year, I've moved away from running the operations day to day. And I've been very lucky to work with some very talented managers in the organization to be able to hand over the day to day operation and responsibility to them, which has allowed me to focus more on our global business development. Mm -hmm. So my, my, my focus and priority, apart from being a, a, a board member and, and dealing with all sorts of business challenges at the moment, is to develop our global expansion and global business and expand within servicing global organizations. And that involves everything from supporting our sales and marketing teams through to putting together compelling propositions and, and pitching to clients who, you know, desperately need to talk to a decision maker and a senior yeah, stakeholder yeah. in, in the yeah. organization. Yeah, perfect. Let's move to the core of this conversation. Like in our previous discussion, when we discussed what, what we would like to cover during this episode, we agreed that we will talk about uh, value over vanity. And please, uh, try to humanize this phrase for for me and our listeners. You know my background and you know that I really like things to be explained. But yeah, it's really vague. <laughs> so yeah, it's catchy, but yeah, yeah, what does it, it is mean? catchy. But yeah, what does this mean? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's probably worth mentioning, first of all, that the theme was inspired by the recent Amec Global Summit mm. in Miami, Vanity to Value demonstrating the impact of comms. And uh, as part of a media intelligence business, I find this topic very close to my heart. Uh, and as, a, as an active AMEC board member as well, we talk a lot about how we help our clients, our the, the, the communications teams we work with and for, how we help them prove and demonstrate value to their organizations. Ultimately, the need to talk about this comes from the fact that communications and PR has been through a turbulent time in the last maybe five, 10 years, whereby a lot of people in our industry, in the communications industry, have talked about the fact that they don't feel that they get the attention that they think that they deserve at the table when it comes to making decisions. They don't get invited to the board meetings. Uh, they don't participate actively in driving the businesses or organizations they represent forward, but also they're not seen as people or teams that can deliver business growth. And that is a yeah. struggle when it comes to proving the value of your day-to-day -day job and being yeah. able to defend your next year's budget and realistically prove to those business owners, shareholders and the board meeting that what you do on a daily basis contributes yeah. to the success of the business. And that has also led to a little bit to the demise of the PR profession in that PR people are not viewed as delivering enough value. Therefore, guess what? They're not paid enough or they're not yeah. paid a lot. And that that is a vicious circle in terms of you don't get the chance to hire good talent because people, you know, have certain expectations. And I think a lot of us in the industry uh, and our clients' uh, industry realize that we are responsible to a large degree for the state of the PR and communications industry. And we as partners to that industry and as communicators in our own right, in our businesses, are in charge of bringing change and, and moving away from how we are uh, perceived. Back to your question around 
translate or explain value over vanity. I, I strongly believe that part of the problem that the communications community has had is, and, and, and that's why it hasn't been able to prove its value, is the fact that it's focused on very rudimentary, superficial, you can argue, vanity metrics when it tries to explain the results and the impact of their day-to-day work. And, you know, we've all come across a lot of those uh, in our work. We talk about volumetrics, people focusing on the volume of coverage you get, on share of voice, sentiment and prominence. There's there's various different... And, and a lot of people in our industry probably are guilty of coming up with these elaborate metrics and KPIs that are called different things to kind of try and mask the problem. But realistically, it boils down to there's a number and there's a timeline and you project that number over a timeline. And I suppose there's nothing wrong in using those metrics and KPIs, but they... What we're advocating for is that they shouldn't be looked at in isolation because volume in its purest form in isolation doesn't tell you a lot. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't be looking at vanity metrics. Mm. Vanity Mm. metrics and numbers should be considered, but in the context of the larger media conversation and more importantly, the communications objectives that an organization has and ultimately what's the impact of what communications delivers on the behavioral changes uh, of their target audience. Ultimately, what, what we're aiming for is what's the impact that communication has on your target audience, as opposed to how many mentions do you have in the media this month? It's more about how has this led to increase in, for example, purchasing or in the change in public opinion? How has the work you've done delivered results and behavioral changes so that someone decides to act differently, change their views on the subject matter, start buying a product or stop buying a product? Uh, that's what we are looking for. And that's what, that's what we, we mean when we say value and impact. We, we need to help communicators measure that value and impact. Of course, one of the deliverables or the inputs is, or the, one of the outputs, I should say, is uh, these vanity metrics. But there's a number of other areas within the outcomes of how uh, what an audience does in response to what you have done as a PR and communications professional. That really should be our focus. Brilliant. Let's talk more about this then. I get it now. If I if I can summarize that, we shouldn't care just for numbers like impression, clicks, etc., but we should translate this into real how to say, business effects, uh, the amounts of business these impressions and clicks generate. Is that correct? Do I understand you correctly? That is absolutely correct. And and the reason Mm -hmm. for that is that media is one of many parts of the communication mosaic. Earned media in particular, but also social and owned, they're one part, one element of the mosaic. And they should, and media should always be present when we evaluate communication, but it's not the only area that, that we should look at and evaluate. There are a number of other areas within our target audience and how we impact that target audience that we should be tracking, monitoring and helping our clients evaluate. So yeah, ultimately, I think the purpose of this will be to prove impact and what happens further downstream as a result of our activity in business, in the economy, what are the changes that happen in society. Uh, And that's the ultimate objective and how we prove the value of of what we do. How do we get that reliable data? So Because it's easy to measure the number of mentions. It's easy to measure how many clicks or how many retweets, like the tweet head and all that. So it's easy and cheap 
to get that information? How do we get like this real input, like this real impact uh, of, you know, of your marketing strategy or your PR strategy? I guess the starting point is to understand our client organizations, uh, communications objectives, first of all. What are the key messages and priorities of the business? Uh, ultimately, if we have uh, a certain number of media coverage, a volume of media coverage, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that media coverage reflects our communication strategy and what we want to push forward as messages. So the first step is to qualitatively assess and reassess the media performance of a brand and project it back to its original objectives and the objectives of the PR team. And further downstream, when it comes to measuring the impact on the the actual business or organization results, we need to start using other tools outside of just measuring media performance. And these tools include surveys, market research, public opinion research that gives us more information about uh, the, the ultimate impact. Within the more business and corporate environment, the best metric at the, at the end of the of, of the journey ultimately is point of sale data, how much more have you sold as an organization? How how has that contributed to your bottom line, your share price? And I think this is where probably one of the challenges that our industry has come across in, in trying to take our clients on the journey uh, is the fact that sometimes there is resistance and reluctance to share that more confidential information when it comes to giving us the data and us having access to the data to project some sort of trajectory or uh, a dependency between what communications have achieved and, and what the final end result is. But but that should be, you know, coming from what's the objective of the business? How does that translate into communications objectives and try and project that over time, allowing for any delay in, in, in impact as well? Because when you do something as simple as a press release, for example, and that's picked up by the media, you don't get the impact straight away. So the logical models that you need to build to assess that impact should account for a delay in consumer reaction. Uh, and also a lot of, of what we do uh, in terms of PR is long-term brand building and consumer impact. It's not something that happens overnight. You know, you, as I say, as a very uh, simple example, you publish a press release and that delivers or that brings a behavioral change. It's over time and it's being consistent in, in delivering those messages. Yes. It sounds like it will be like the ideal situation would be that you have a dashboard when you can see the number of mentions or how your press release was received. And then like two weeks later, you can see on the same dashboard, you can see, okay, does my sales, are my sales going up? Is there a connection for that? Yeah, ultimately that, that's what we, we all should be trying to achieve, trying to relate back to the original objectives, to the ultimate objectives mm. of and goals of the business. An interesting fact for you, by the way, is, and that was something that Matt Neal, the Golin CEO, mentioned in his presentation at, at Amec in Miami, was that Airbnb, who recently announced their biggest earnings to date after a deliberate shift in spend from performance marketing to long-term brand building, have said that PR is now Airbnb's most important channel. And that's something that, that comes from someone who has spent millions of dollars every year on performance marketing on paid advertising. And it's interesting to see that coming from, from the perspective of experience of saying, look, you know, earned media and PR and what our PR and communications team will be the focus now because we see the best return from long-term investment in, in brand building as opposed to 
clicks, which is very perishable, isn't it? You, mm. you know, and you need to pour money into that. And the problem with, with advertising is with paid uh, marketing is the fact that it has become times more expensive. It's four times, performance marketing is four times more expensive than it was five years ago, but the results you get ultimately diminish. Um, and it's interesting to see how changes like what's happening with Twitter, with Elon Musk at the top. They have a new CEO now since yesterday, I believe, or earlier this week. Yeah. How that has also something like this, you know, one player like Twitter has transformed with a few decisions, has transformed the advertising game. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon to watch. Yeah, Elon Musk stepped down and me and Alicia, we have a target to mention Elon Musk uh, at least once. At least once. once per episode. Yeah, this is KPI was met. Yeah. <laughs> this is met. KPI tick. Yes. Tick. Yeah. So this is done. What do you think will happen with Twitter, by the way, just out of interest? What do you think Twitter, obviously a big subject in our industry yeah. with the uh, increase in firehose prices? Um, a yeah. lot of companies in our industry can't afford to be paying half a million dollars a year, which is the, the minimum yeah. threshold now. Mm. How do you think that will change our industry? Oh, yeah, I think that we lost like a significant data source. There is a lot of insights there. I'm sure that a lot of people right now are looking for ways to collect this data. I don't think that half a million is a fair price for, for that that amount of data, especially for public data. So my true belief is that we'll scale down uh, the, the number of the sources. We'll just need to come up with a methodology uh, to monitor just uh, the primary sources with some sort of like basic automation. But for sure, we are going to lose, ac like the majority of MMOs will lose access to a way broader data set. The way I understand, uh, we need to pay almost half a million or at least uh, $46,000 per month for just 0.3% uh, of uh, the Twitter content, something like that. Please correct me or, yeah, I'm just take these numbers with a pinch of salt because this is something I read. Pretty much they will leave us uh, out of the conversation. Twitter will lose, in, in a way it will lose from this type of deal because it won't be considered, like in a way we cannot measure the influence this type of communication has within Twitter. So brands will in a way shift to other platforms where they can get that data. I'm sure that most of the companies will stay, but yeah, you don't know. It's very hard to measure. So yeah, th th this will happen regarding our industry. Twitter will stay. They prove that they can fire 80% of their stuff and not collapse. <laughs> They're hiring right now. I don't know. Uh, Elon Musk will stay as product developer. So we'll see how he will change the product. I'm not particularly fan of most of his product decisions. Uh, in terms of product, you know, I'm a huge Twitter user, but nothing significant as far. This is me. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think will happen? Like uh, how this change in Twitter data, in a way, does this undermine uh, value of anything? I think that there's definitely going to be a period of time when some of the players in the market still have access to the Twitter firehose and be able to pay half a million dollars a year and others won't be able to pay that. So uh, as a starter, there will be a, a shift around uh, using that as a as a competitive advantage. I mean, 
you will be silly not to use that if you are part of that small group of, of vendors that actually have access to the content. What I think will happen longer term is that Twitter has already started losing popularity amongst its core client base. So even in America, where it probably is its biggest its biggest customer base, some of the biggest influencers have reduced the amount of time they spend publishing on it. And, you know, even though who are still there and are publishing, are using it purely for publicity. And a large chunk of the people I follow have switched off comments, for example, because they have seen the increase of, of, of abuse, of trolls. And that's not something that is clearly not heading in the right direction since um, yeah. Elon Musk took over the organization. So I, I think, obviously, advertising revenue is is going elsewhere uh, yeah. because he is very he was very good at putting off advertisers and calling out people <laughs> who who spent money you don't want to be called names if you invest yeah. in the platform so there's a lot of controversy around that i think longer term time will only show if any of the other big tech companies will be able to produce a competitor as mention of uh, meta creating a, a text based short message app that will compete or compete for the revenue and the audience there's uh, mentions that Substack with its recent note release, the Substack notes feature is realistically competing with what Twitter give its user base, the ability to send short text messages. Uh, but yeah, it would be interesting to see if we were to speak 10 years later, how we will yeah. reflect on this conversation and, and how we'll, <laughs> we'll have evolved. Would, will Twitter still exist in 10 years, I guess? Or how does it look like? They have this really ambitious plan to be something like YouTube, so they will allow people to upload unlimited uh, videos uh, in terms of size and quality. So yeah, we will see how Twitter looks like. Uh, in a way, I miss the original concepts of just uh, text and few characters there. Yeah, I really am not a fan of the all like social media apps losing their identity and they are just becoming like one and the same app. So you have text, videos, <laughs> photos. Used to have only text, now you have photos, videos, now you have unlimited text. Now you have, you know, you can uh, shop from Twitter and all of that. And again, the thing that I notice is that uh, a lot of changes that are happening on, on Twitter are very American based. So US, US based and they do not apply to European market. And for example, if you would mm. like to, when you're in Poland, you would like to buy an ad on Twitter, you cannot do it in Polish. Your ad have to be in, mm. in English <laughs> for Polish yeah. users to see. So this is like, so, so like very many things are like unthought of. And, and, and it sounds like very, why would I buy an ad that cannot be read by people in their original language, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. We will see what will happen with Twitter, but let's talk a little bit more again for elevating the role and importance of foreign media in the strategic growth of the brands. We mentioned this a little bit just a few minutes ago, but let's dive deeper into this. Uh, I know that uh, Rainy has a lot of examples and case studies. So let's move to that topic. Uh, Rainy, why do you think that that role needs to be elevated? In a way, this is, how to say, a common sense, but obviously the industry is not there, right? Well, I guess it's part of the challenge that the 
publishing business and turned media in general has been facing in the last 15 years, 20 years since the rise of, of social media. As new channels of communication started to appear 20 years ago or so, and with the rise of internet, earned media in its purest form, the traditional newspapers and magazines, TV and radio, lately or, or in later years, uh, online as well, has kind of lost its importance has gone down in the priorities of, of businesses and organizations. Yet earned media and, and professional journalism is the only trustworthy, reliable source of information, depending on where you read and what sort of publications you read. You, you, you definitely know that there is a certain standard and journalistic ethics that are being observed and there's a certain editorial policy that is being adhered to. Um, so clearly, despite what everyone thought 20 years ago, earned media is here to stay. Uh, and yeah. there's a significant value that it adds to the public conversation and to giving visibility to different views in society, but also creating a platform for conversation and for public debate. Um, the challenge that communications and PR has faced in recent years is that there's less focus on earned media as more focus and time and budget are spent on paid and social and paid in social. Um, and I guess that has become one of the problems when it comes to defending a budget for your own uh, activities, uh, communications activities. Um, a lot of the time, earned has been viewed, and that's something, again, that, that Matt spoke about at AMEC in Miami, uh, Earned media is viewed as a way or a channel where you act to protect your brand. Something happens in the public space and you want to correct it. So you publish a press release and you initiate conversations, interviews with the media, participate in public debates to address that problem. So it's about protecting what you already have. The problem with protecting is that it doesn't generate enough value in order to justify the existence of, of PR and communication when it comes to earned media and, and what they do in the earned media. Um, again, because of the, the how expensive paid has become, I think organizations are starting to reevaluate the importance of earned media mm -hmm. because although obviously you invest budgets in maintaining that and, and having a team and a strategy to manage your relationship and your presence, uh, you ultimately don't pay for every word or your, uh, every keyword or every, every click that, yeah, that you yeah, publish. Yeah. And in that sense, earned media should stay as one of the, the, the main media channels in, in your media mix when it comes to growing your brand. It's not only about protecting, clearly that role remains, but increasingly uh, more focus should be focused on growing and delivering what is essentially business results, sales results. And earned media has that, that ability to, to give us that additional string to our bow, I guess. And I think there's definitely an opportunity to be for that to be utilized better. And I guess the other point around that as well is, and something that we should all pay attention to, and we spoke a lot about it, we have spoken about it at, at different events, is that PR should start moving upstream when it comes to its role. And again, that's related to us being viewed as, or starting to be viewed as a value center, more as a cost center. That, mm -hmm. uh, you know, age old discussion mm -hmm. in terms of how you are perceived in the organization. And I think PR has the great potential of informing strategic decisions and helping with planning uh, and also helping with predicting trends and helping the organization to prepare for the future. And, and that future is really something that, that, that we all focus on. Interestingly, 
the FIBAP World Congress in Singapore in September yeah, is focused yeah. on how to future-proof our businesses, how to future-proof media intelligence. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's even more important in today because of the, the big transformation that's happening, not only as a result of generative AI, but as a whole in, in society uh, and, and around us. Do you think that like media intelligence organizations should be a part of that conversation and they should educate their clients about the value of their PR teams? And, you know, we all should be a part of making that change happen. Most definitely. And the expertise that we bring in terms of our data literacy and the access to tools and understanding how to use data in its best form is something that, that we bring to the table. And that's something that, interestingly, a lot of PR teams are missing. There was a research done by a Coverage Book, which one of its founders, Stella, presented at AMAC in Miami about the problem with data literacy amongst PR and communications teams. The number was staggering of people in PR roles who can't comprehend data. They, I guess, can't use an Excel file. They can't interpret a pie chart. And that is a problem. It is a big problem when it comes to proving value and actually proving value with data and hard numbers. Because again, you know, speaking about one of the other challenges in our industry uh, and the communications overall is 80% of the times decisions are made based on gut feel and 20% of the time based on data. And our ambition and our, our mission is to turn that around. And as an industry, we are responsible and we play a big role in, in turning that around in providing the, the, the data and the support, I guess, that PR teams need to be able to base 80% of their decisions on data and 20% on gut feel. Of course, there's a lot of <laughs> knowledge that one brings to the table. You've been in the industry for 20 years, you know, certain things will and won't work, but you know, that gut feel needs to be supported with data because sometimes perceptions are misleading. And the number of people you ask about how they would interpret an event, you know, the, the number of people you ask, the, the same number of opinions you probably get. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult. And coming from a position of being a business owner, uh, it's really difficult, impossible to make business decision, business decisions on that based on different perceptions and views. So yeah, definitely I can speak from my own with my kind of business ownership uh, hat on. Uh, data plays a big role in how we make decisions and we challenge each other on a daily basis. In the boardroom, we constantly ask, well, so, you know, there's a statement made, you know, what is the data? Where's the data that proves that? And a lot of times with data, you know, you said that, Alicia, um, and it is a something that we speak a lot about in our industry the, is the importance of reliable data because data can be misinterpreted and misrepresented. And it's really important to have a responsible attitude when we present data and the responsibilities with us when it comes to advising and helping uh, our clients and holding hands when it comes to educating them how to use data. And you, you, know, you can't assume that your data literacy, which I'm sure both of you have an extremely high data literacy compared to To, to probably the average, we're definitely in the world, but maybe in the industry as well. Yeah. Uh, we can't assume that everyone around us has the same level of understanding of of how they they interpret and how they use data. Um, yeah. I don't know what's your experience. Do you see that being a challenge? I mean, we've 
We've also had lots of people recently, people from, you know, younger people as well. And I see a lot of, I, I see that becoming a bigger, increasingly bigger problem. Um, yeah. You can't assume that someone is data literate only because, you know, they're from a certain generation or vice versa. Is that, is that a challenge from your perspective? Yeah. So before I started working as, as my current position, I used to work in customer service and, uh, and I work a lot with PR agencies. And I saw what you were talking about, that people don't really understand the data. So they are just generating the report and sending it to their you know manager, but they have no idea what does all the numbers mean and are they doing it. It's bigger than the last month, so probably we are doing something good, but they cannot really interpret it in any way. I really don't assume anything about people. Like <laughs> That's why we test them. <laughs> but yeah, there were times where, I don't know, if someone is young, uh, it was kind of safe to presume that he's tech savvy and uh, internet uh, literate. I don't think that that's true anymore. Like with the democratization of new media, having access to the internet is nothing special. So everyone has access to the internet, which does not mean, mean that the majority of people actually know how in the internet works or the web works or everything contemporary works. People are just users. And in a way, we are feeling this we as an industry, we can feel this huge skill gap because the educational system does not uh, support us in a way. Like uh, the educational system, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, maybe maybe all over the world, it's really, really focused on these traditional skills. Like people learn, my personal experience, too much math. Why? Or um, physics. Not the majority of people will be like mechanical engineers anymore. So in a way, we need to update the educational system because businesses like ours, we need to train our own people. Like we just find people with right mindset and then we train them on the job which is a huge investment because we pay taxes too as businesses. So we need to pay taxes once. And after that, we uh, train people on the job. So yeah, that's the reality. That's the reality. But I think that uh, both uh, FIBEP and AMEC, uh, they do a lot in order to educate. Uh, plus our podcast, it is in that field. So I really hope that we are not listened only by people from the industry, but like we are listened uh, from people who are interested uh, to join our industry and to, to learn more about the mechanics and how things work here. Small industry, by the way, <laughs> compared to other fields. Small, but interesting. So yeah, this is this is my fake. I don't assume anything. We test. I personally, as an employer, look for the right mindset. That's the only thing I'm looking for. And this is for the last 14, 15 years. And this does not change. So I'm sure that it is the same with you. Like when I you totally find, agree with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, please, yeah. That's exactly what our experience is. Literally... Uh, the one thing we look for is attitude. And the best way to assess that is in your interaction with a candidate during the interviews, the various stages of the interview, how they communicate, how they react to tasks, um, how quickly they turn around assignments. You know, all that is, is much more important than the hard skill. Uh, yeah. And you're right. In, I don't think that it's only a challenge in the in our small domain of media intelligence. It's a challenge in the bigger communications and marketing industry. Uh, the, the the kind of level of skills, entry levels of skills is really difficult to find. So you end up having to have 
in, you know, in-house academies, if you want, training programs, training functions, knowledge management functions within the organization in order to be able to produce the talents that you need at scale. And especially for an organization like ours that's going through a, a very rapid growth at the moment, that's a really important, uh, a really important part of the equation is to be able to create talent internally. Um, but like you say, it's a big investment. It takes time. Um, you need uh, the overhead to support that. And also uh, you need to measure, going back to measuring impact, you need to measure <laughs> what the, what's the success uh, was the success rate? Was the retention rate, and and how that impacts the overall business? But I I 100% agree that's the only way forward. If you want to have the the organizational muscle to grow within within this industry and related industries, you need to be able to create that talent internally. I know you. Vlado have had a lot of, um, ed, I suppose you're involved in university, um, in your own right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you've seen, you've seen that a lot, but there's not a kind of single university that I've seen that, that offers a degree or even courses that, that help towards what, what we do as an industry. I know yeah. that people are trying and uh, certainly some people in, uh, in your market specifically mm. have done a lot of work in your organization as well, which is very admirable and it's hard work. Um, yeah. but it's difficult. It's not like, uh, you know, you are a law firm and yeah. you just <laughs> wait at the door for the next yeah. Yeah. year of graduates, mm. right? Yeah, or 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 an accounting business or something. Or an like accounting that. business, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's difficult and it's difficult to attract and retain talent in yeah. this industry. Yeah. And what's difficult as well is um again kind of goes back to our discussion is a lot of what we do is on the crossroads between creative, being a creative skill set that yeah. you require, and having a more of a data mindset, a, a more of a technical data mindset. And finding people that cover both bases is extremely difficult. And sometimes even training people that cover both is really true. difficult. And yeah. for for us, certainly as part of our media evaluation practice, this, this is the sort of profile that you, in an ideal world, require. Yeah. You need yeah. someone who can work with data, big data sets, they can use technology, they can use, you know, large language models, they can interrogate data using yeah you know, in-house or third-party apps, but also at the end of the day, after they've done that and they've extracted, I suppose, the insights that you need, you then need to put that into words. You need to be able to explain yeah. it in simple words, in, in, in a language that's understandable to your client, what that means and how that should be interpreted mm -hmm. in a wider mm -hmm. media context. And finding that 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 balance is that cross of skills is so difficult and training that cross of skills is really difficult. I totally agree. People with hyper skills are extremely hard to find and they should be really valued within their organizations. Yeah, but that's a whole different discussion. This podcast won't be this podcast if we don't discuss generative AI. And that's that's the third main topic. Yeah, finally we reached Amen. That yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, generative AI everywhere for everyone. I know that we, we had this, uh, the feedback take day and I checked the agenda and like 70% uh, of the topics they had chat GPT in their titles. I'm not sure about the AMEC event. I believe that it was not that saturated with uh, generative AI, but I'm sure that the topic was represented there. So if we go back to our meta topic, uh, uh, value uh, over vanity, where is the place of generative AI here? A lot of people are thinking that 
if we commoditize content, actually we will bring the value down of a content. So yeah, what, what do you think about that? And uh, yeah, what are your general thoughts uh, regarding generative AI? You're right. AI uh, or generative AI was one of the talking points at AMEC, and I'm sure it will be in September in Singapore. Yeah. Although we shouldn't allow that to take over. There are specialized events every day, probably, <laughs> yeah. within different areas and industries. But that w- it was one of the discussions. And uh, there's a number of concerns that have been raised uh, at different events, podcasts, on this very podcast as well, around the use of, of generative AI. And I guess one of the big challenges of our day and, and probably the years to come will be the legal framework and the yeah. government oversight within mm. generative AI. What I find worrying is the fact that something like social media has taken so many years and I don't think that we are there yet when it comes to government oversight. And I hope that we can learn uh, from that when it comes to generative AI. And, you know, there's multiple hearings at Congress in America and and here in in Europe and the UK and, you know, inquiries being done by, by the government with AI executives. And I think generally the AI community or the kind of AI, um, generative AI technology owners are very open to being regulated and being part of the discussion. But there's a lot of catching up to do when it comes to the respective governments. I think the European Union is probably one of the very few that has done something or started doing some meaningful work um, outside of countries like Italy, which just outright banned something like ChatGPT for some time. (laughs) That's not regulation in its its right form, is it? It's just an immediate reaction to stop it. So I think definitely government oversight is one of the big challenges. And organizations like FIBA and AMEC and other industry bodies and industry collaboration organizations have a big role to play in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we want our voices to be heard and to have a seat at the table, we need to voice our concerns on all sides and and also the benefits that we see from from generative AI. On a more industry level scale, uh, on a more industry level um, for, for us in media intelligence, there's a big temptation. I see two camps of organizations in our industry. One is denying that generative AI can play any role in communications Mm. and media intelligence, and (laughs) therefore saying, uh, voicing concerns about commoditizing the industry, devaluing the market, a race to the bottom. We don't want to participate, is what some of those people say. Don't touch it and it will go away. And there's (laughs) the second group of organizations that actually embrace it and they embrace it for the right reasons. And I'm pleased to say that that WooPoint is part of the second organization. Mm. I know you guys from what I hear on the podcast are doing the same. The reason why we embrace it is because we want to be active participants in deciding if and how we want to use generative AI and large language models. We don't want to be the people who are being told by third parties how and what we should be doing. We want to convince ourselves and we want to do the testing and the experimenting. And you're right in saying ChatGPT is not not everything. There's so many other models to be looking at. Maybe ChatGPT is the most accessible one that you can play with on a daily basis, but there's so much more to look at. And we're definitely part of that group of organizations that want to be among the first to know what it's good for and what it's not good for. And we are doing a lot of experimenting and testing. And back to your point about 
about investment. Of course, it, it requires investment for you to be able to, to be part of that uh, of that game and those experiments. Our view is that on that is that we want to be part of the experiment. And as whilst everyone else is trying to find out if and how to use generative AI, we we want to be part of that group of, of companies that that explore explores and exploits that. But what and what I can tell you from from the work we've done so far from a practical implementation point of view in our industry is that generative AI has the potential to help with some of the heavy lifting in terms of processing of big data sets, especially when you work for global clients where you have multiple languages, hundreds of thousands of, of content pieces that you need to process, review, um, and, and make sense of. It's definitely something that can help with some of the heavy lifting and the workflow optimization. And we've done a lot of experimenting with prompts and seen different results. But ultimately, we don't think that what those large language models can produce is ever going to be client-facing. Not for the type of clients that we work with, whereby you have organizations that rely on precision and accuracy of the insights and that can't afford to be misled by something that has, you know, been too creative or hallucinating on the back of, of results and insights. And I guess uh, that's, that's the big challenge that a lot of, of people in, in any industry, see. I mean, you probably read about this, uh, case that a barrister evidently used ChatGPT to produce evidence for a law case. Yeah. And uh, evidently when the evidence was reviewed, the judges found out that none of the examples, the cases that he quoted <laughs> were real. Oh, So clearly the, um, uh, I suppose, uh, defense he had is, well, it was the first time I was using ChatGPT. It's not my fault. Yeah. And yeah. we're talking here about people who have sworn in certain ethics and in industry and, and I suppose work standards. And I think that's a that's a slightly different use case when you you know from what we are doing. We're feeding data into those large language models and expect a result based on that limited data set that we feed in. This is very different from asking ChatGPT to recommend. I don't know, the, or write a poem or come up with a defense for a lawsuit. So we are very excited about everything we do on that front. I suppose one of the biggest challenges that we see is big risks that we see, lots of risks around. So first of all, lots of uncertainty around the final outcome. Is it going to be helpful? How is it going to be helpful? To what extent it can be used? And a lot of work will need to be done to come to some conclusions and each organization will probably come to their own conclusions. And I would encourage everyone in our industry to use opportunities such as the World Congress in Singapore to share experiences. I think sometimes we are overly protective about, oh, this is our IP, we're doing work, we don't want to tell anyone else in the industry. Whilst we can probably learn from each other's mistakes if we share our experience better. But one of the risks that we see, let's assume we find that one of these models is very um, helpful and useful to our business and we decide to integrate it in our production workflow. What we're worried about is that that might create a future dependency on a third party to an extent that you have no control over some of the underlying technology. Not only that, but also a good example with Twitter some you have no control over the pricing mechanism that these third party providers will impose on you and that is a big risk for our industry if you spend a lot of time implementing technology to help your processes and improve results and out outcomes for clients it's a problem if suddenly you wake up on one on the next day and you can't use it mm. so what we're looking at as a as an organization is to and that's why we're experimenting with more than chat gpt we chat gpt is easy easily accessible fairly cheap at the moment 
moment, even at API level, you can spend a few hundred dollars and, and prove or disprove uh, a hypothesis. But what we are focusing on is and looking at is using a generative AI model that will give us the opportunity to deploy a private instance of that model, something that will give us control over that longer term. Uh, and that, I guess, is something that alongside the actual application and usefulness of it is one consideration for everyone in our industry to probably bear in mind. Absolutely. Really insightful. Alicia, do you have any other questions? No, I think it's right now. It's basically saying like what, what we did say on the, our last episode, right? Like that you don't have time to wait yeah. to see how this turned out. You have to, you know, put your impact now because right mm. now we have still chance to influence how this all is going to work for us. And we cannot just sit and wait, okay, how is going to turn out? And, and people who say that it's going to go away, it's going to stay is it stay with us and probably we will wait some time for next big thing but for now this is the big thing that we have to you know learn to to use what do you both think about the all the apocalyptic oh. views of uh, what Chaji or uh, generative ai will Vlado bring, has opinions i can bring see from your this world <laughs> listeners cannot see vlado's face but he was so ready for this question <laughs> <laughs> i pay Raina to ask me this question <laughs> I really don't think that uh, this is the end of the world, quite the opposite, uh, for sure. And for sure for our industry. Yeah, some of the things we used to do will be automated, uh, but we saw this many times before, like manual data collection. Remember those times? They were like 15 years ago. Nobody does this anymore. Maybe we will start doing it in Twitter, by the way, <laughs> because we'll not have access to the APIs. But yeah, I assume that this will change. In a way, they will create this for the Twitter case, they will create this um, program, especially for media intelligence companies. And in a way, we together uh, through AMEC and feedback, we should uh, discuss this problem, like the way these changes affect the influence of Twitter with Twitter. But if I go back, I really don't think that this will be the end of the world. Uh, there are some possible negative scenarios. I call them black mirror scenarios. Black mirror used to be, and I believe it's still a very popular TV show uh, on Netflix. It's a, usually in, in Black Mirror are presented really dystopian versions of the future. But there are, are several uh, scenarios where we see like a Black Mirror scenario in, in our case. Uh, maybe the, the darkest one is if we start to heavily rely on centralized AI. And that system, in a way, transforms into a, like a knowledge-sucking system where all the knowledge in the world uh, is sucked in out of our companies and uploaded into these centralized models. Um, the same way what happened with uh, advertisement. Uh, right now we have generally two very big ad advertisers, Facebook and Google. We saw that a few years ago. Uh, if this scenario repeats here, uh, it won't be just the advertising money. It will be all the knowledge and all the value we produce with the knowledge in our heads. But that's really a dystopian future. I'm sure that we as societies and communities, we're not going to allow that. And as businesses, so I strongly support what Raina said. Uh, she said that uh, we need to 
yeah, we need to utilize this type of tag, but this type of tag should be locally deployed. We should have control of this. We should preserve our knowledge. If we are going to use GPT from OpenAI, there should be a way for us to do not upload our knowledge. Uh, all of this should be preserved. And they, uh, to be fair, are working on that. There are claims that even if we fine-tune the model, uh, this will be just for us and this is not going to be distributed uh, with our competition or with the rest of the world. So I'm sure that uh, people within OpenAI, Microsoft and Google and Amazon, they're actively thinking how to work with us and how to make us feel safe and for sure make us <laughs> keep preserve our knowledge. Uh, so yeah, that, that that's the future. And if that happens, yeah, I'll be okay to work with centralized AI as an infrastructure because it will be just better and we will just pay for the calls. Uh, but on top of that, uh, prompt engineering, chain of thoughts, things like O2GPT, this will be the, the tech in which we need to invest in. And it'll be interesting to see when we see each other, hopefully in Singapore for the Fever yeah. World Congress, how and if our thoughts around that mm, would have changed. evolved. Because yeah. there's a lot going on and, and more and more tech coming out. So it'll be, it'll be good to catch up on that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's in how many? Three months? It sounds like a whole eternity. So everything can happen <laughs> in these three months. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't really like how they are talking about generative AI, like nuclear threat or something like that. We are, we are far from that. And I think that telling this kind of story takes away the attention from the problems that we have right now, because we are talking about something. And a lot of people also think about like general AI. That's something that can, and they, they mix the generative AI with general AI, and that's not the same thing. And, <laughs> and generative AI is like what Vlado said in our previous episode, is just the autofill up. That's kind yeah. of smart. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's far away from ruling over your life. Can I just make one, one comment? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. If we have one absolutely. minute. Amic is traveling to Sofia, Bulgaria next year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. With the kind support of A Data Pro. Mm -hmm. So we, we all look forward to seeing everyone <laughs> in my and, and Vlado's home country. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Finally, one of these huge events will come to Bulgaria. So it was right about time, right? Very exciting. Yeah. yeah. I'm very, <laughs> very excited exciting. about it. Okay. Thank you, Raina, for uh, all the things which you said. It was really insightful. I learned a lot. And we are looking forward to talk to you again, not only on the events, but back back to the podcast. So feel free to yeah share with us ideas and would like to talk to you as soon as possible. Thanks for having me. It was a great honor. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. This was the end of the interview and we really hoped that the whole conversation was very interesting and very useful for you. A few words about who worked on this episode. The hosts were Alicia Bors and Vlado Petkov. We would like to say thanks to our audio editor, Anton Vele from Govori Internet. We would like to say thanks to our marketing team, Anna Sanova and Oresti Patricios. And uh, we would like to say thanks to Identrix, the company which uh, supports media intelligence explained. Thank you and we will see each other in a month. Bye-bye.